presents Can I Get a Witness? The sermon by the Reverend Jean Randall Bodman presented on Sunday, April 21st, 2019. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Can I get a witness? Amen. (laughs) Those beautiful words are from the prologue of John's Gospel, whose version of the Easter story we just heard. In this prologue, John is giving his witness to the whole story of Jesus in a few short lines. The light came into the world, and the darkness did not overcome it. This prologue is both the summary of the whole gospel, and it's also John's version of the nativity. I know, wrong season, but there's a reason. Matthew's genealogy takes us all the way back to Abraham and roots Jesus firmly in his tradition. Luke's genealogy takes us all the way back to Adam and Eve and connects Jesus to the whole of humanity. John goes even farther back to the beginning of creation to proclaim that the love of God that came into the world in Jesus was with God and part of God, loving everything that is into existence, alive since before the world began. And that same Jesus who came to make God known, to move people into an experience of God's presence, was crucified by human greed, by human hunger for power, and by the human romance with systems of domination. Systems so routine that they are part of the normalcy of civilization. And it is a romance that we have not yet grown tired of. And then, as the old, old story goes, witnesses went to his tomb in the pre-dawn dark as soon as they could On the day after the Sabbath, they went to tend to and mourn over the body of Jesus. And they came back with stories that didn't make any sense. Now, there were multiple versions of the story in the oral tradition, and we know that because they've come down to us in the different Gospels. Certainly, the authors chose the versions they did for their own theological reasons. But there were multiple stories because the people who were there were in distress. After the excitement and joy of the entry into Jerusalem, the confrontation over the money changers in the temple, the deep tenderness of that last dinner that Jesus shared with his friends, washing their feet and commanding them to love one another. After the terror in the garden when armed guards came and carried Jesus away, the horror a Friday when he was brutally murdered. After all that, I can only imagine that the inner circle was somewhat traumatized, their minds in that fractured state that can happen after a deep shock. I wonder if any of you 
I expect that many of us have experienced that kind of kaleidoscope mind. After a car accident or an act of violence or a sudden death of a beloved one. The way time fragments, seeming to speed up and then inexplicably come to a complete standstill. How the world can seem remote, as if you are looking at it through a pane of glass rather than living right in among the things you are seeing. I think it must have been like that for Jesus' friends in the aftermath of his death. They didn't report the same things because they didn't actually experience the same things. And John's telling captures this, disjointed as it is, and coming to us in two oddly connected episodes. In the first episode, the two disciples, Peter and the beloved one, having heard from Mary that Jesus' tomb is open and that he has been taken, the two of them go running, jockeying for position. The beloved one gets there first, but the author is clear to tell us that Peter went in first. He came panting and sweating up behind and elbowed his way in. There they discovered the neatly folded grave clothes, the linen wrappings, and the handkerchief that covered Jesus' face, lying separate from each other. Scholars and church people debate this, but I have always believed that the beloved disciple is Lazarus, and that having been in the tomb once himself, he got to the edge and could not go in. These two see the empty tomb. They believe Mary's report that Jesus' body has been taken, and they go on home. In perplexity, in wonder, in sorrow, in hope, we don't know because they don't say. In the second episode, Mary Magdalene is alone again, weeping at the tomb of her friend and beloved teacher. Mary Magdalene, whose name has been slandered throughout much of Christian history, who has been labeled a prostitute, an adulteress, a fallen woman. She is none of those things. And moreover, she is the only disciple who shows up in the Easter story of all four Gospels. Not even Jesus does that. And I'm so grateful. If this is the way it works at all, in some distant day, in another life, if I am being told the old, old story, of all the disciples, it is Mary Magdalene's story I want most to hear. Healed by Jesus, devoted to him, there at his trial, there at his crucifixion, she is there in the early dawn hours to find his tomb open and empty. And still, she stays. Of the people whose experiences of Jesus after the resurrection are included in the Bible, Mary is the only one to see him face to face alone, just the two of them there in the garden. Of all the stories, it is the most personal and the most tender. After the two vying disciples satisfy themselves that she's telling the truth, and they go away, she weeps alone. I imagine her there, bent over in her grief, brought low by the brutality of Jesus' death, and the sense of horror 
at his body being unsafe even in the tomb. I imagine her crying out in indignation at the idea of someone stealing even his body. Lost in sorrow and confusion, she laments to the two men in white who show up miraculously where the two disciples had seen only grave clothes, and she asks them for his body. She is unafraid by their appearance. She can think only of tending to his body. She laments again to the man she presumes to be the gardener and begs for the body, which she says she will take away. And I don't know how she thought she would handle it. Alone with no one to help her to carry it, no pack animal to drape his body across to carry to a new resting place. Such is her devotion. But such is her distress that she doesn't recognize Jesus when she first sees him. She doesn't even recognize his voice until, until he calls her by her name, Mary. And in that one word, he calls her back to herself. And she responds with the name that she called him, Rabbi, and she throws herself into his arms. I think their embrace must have lasted for a moment or two, because Jesus' Jesus's response, don't hold on to me, is better translated, don't cling. Don't cling to me. We can't stay here. Go and tell my brothers. And Mary does go. She goes and she announces, I have seen the Lord. It's not a theological proposition. It's a witness about what she has experienced. Mary is the apostle to the apostles, the ones sent to the ones sent. If it were not for Mary Magdalene, there would be no church. The risen Christ said, can I get a witness? And Mary said, I'll go. Resurrection is the great mystery of our faith, that Jesus, who is for us the fullest expression of God's love, manifesting God's love through acts of compassion and justice, could be killed for his justice and compassion. That seems wearyingly normal. A glance through human history will tell us that this is usual for us, killing whoever speaks too loudly for justice. But that is not the end of our story, because after this, he transcended death. We don't know all of what that means, and we accept and we embrace it in different ways. But whether your heart and mind together lead you to conclude that these stories of post-resurrection visitations are metaphors for the way Jesus' spirit remains alive in the gathered community, or whether you believe in the bodily resurrection, the truth of the story tells us that love triumphs in the midst of suffering. Jesus' post-death presence declares to us that no matter where we are in life, no matter what joy or sorrow we are currently passing through, we are not alone, and it promises us that no despair will be final. And more than that, we are not accompanied in a general way, but in our own unique specificity, as Gary and Will and Erica and Ian, known by name. 
All week long, as I've read and reread this passage, I've heard one phrase from a Mary Chapin Carpenter song running through my mind. And you'll have to excuse me, I don't normally sing in front of people, but it goes like this. I'm a Baptist like my daddy, and Jesus knows my name. Well, I'm obviously not a Baptist, but my daddy was. And the first time I heard that song, it caught me up. And it still catches me up. Because this story affirms to me that yes, God does know each one of us. It affirms to me that Jesus does know the name of each of his followers. That we are not alone. That we can meet Jesus and be in some sense present with him. And we can be present with him without having to be stronger or happier or wiser than we are at any given moment. We can be carefree or heavy laden. We can be confident or afraid, joyful or confused and grieving. And in all of it, we are accompanied. And like Mary, we are called to tell the story of the presence and accompaniment we experience. Jesus came to bring the light of God's love to us. Jesus rose to affirm that that light cannot be extinguished. And now we, living in a mean world where cynicism, sarcasm, and cruelty have become the language of the day, we too are called to witness to the light. We've all been like Mary at the tomb, sorrowing, confused, and alone. Many of us have been like the Mary of history, misunderstood, wrongly identified, vilified, our voices and stories discounted or silenced. And we are all, like Mary, called by name, loved by Jesus, and sent by Jesus to speak love into an angry, frightening world. Can I get a witness? The world needs this message. The world needs your message. There are so many messages already of hate and suspicion being told. Messages like, nothing really matters. You're alone. Worse are the messages delivered by the power of a rigged political system, or an economic system, or in the name of church. The messages that say, you're not worthy. God doesn't love you, you're an abomination. The world needs your message when churches are deliberately set on fire, when the beautiful cathedral built with human hands, as precious as it is, is valued more highly than the cathedral of the world built by God's hands. When America's understanding of itself as the policeman of the world is more important than the human rights of Yemenis and Palestinians. When anti-Semitism is on the rise everywhere, the world needs to hear us say over and over again, I have seen the Lord in the midst of all this brokenness. In the confusion of night, in the darkness of separation and despair, I have seen the Lord. Like Mary, we are sent to tell of God's love for us personally and intimately 
and also for the friend and the neighbor and even the enemy. We are called to tell the truth of our own lives, no matter what others might think, to tell truth to power, no matter what might happen, to tell our truth for freedom, for life, and for love. Mary showed up when others stayed away. Mary stood up when others would not. Mary spoke up when others remained silent. If it works like this at all, in some other distant world, I want to hear Mary. Right here, right now, the world needs to hear us say how we have seen the Lord. The true light is still in the world, and the shadows cannot, will not, shall not overcome it. What is your Mary Magdalene sermon? <laughs>